Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks, two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hi, and welcome to episode number 311 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Diedrich. Hi, everybody. And Jeremy Green. Hello. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, we are going to talk to you about choosing a specialty. Uh, Eric, you suggested this topic. Why don't you lead us into it? Sure. Um, So I had generally in a Slack that I was in asked for um, feedback from uh, anybody who listens to the show about what kind of topics they might be interested in. And somebody said, how does one figure out exactly what to specialize in if one is looking at going independent? This is somebody who is not yet independent, uh, working full time. And this is actually, for me, it's a question that people I know who are currently full time and looking to go independent tend to ask a lot. Um, how do I pick a niche? What do I specialize in? You know, how do I market myself? Kind of everything in that vein. So it seems like a nice, rich topic to talk about. Um, I guess maybe to start off, we could all talk about like what it is we specialize in and how we came to do that. Does that seem like a plan? That seems excellent. Yeah. Go for all it. Right. Start us off. Um, so for me, let's see, I kind of um, worked my way up the software development career path, I guess, and eventually left after being a CIO. And I did at first kind of general management consulting and like coaching and training of software teams. And that gradually evolved into um, what I'm doing today, which was, or I have kind of two lines of business. One is specialized code base assessments and another is basically blogging. Um, I run an agency that does uh, blogging for dev tools companies, which doesn't seem to maybe evolve all that naturally, um, especially the latter. I guess the way this happened was, As a consultant, I um, ran my blog because it provided inbound leads. And the more of that I did, people would approach me and ask me um, to write blog posts for them for pay. And um, on the code base assessment side, what I found is that my management consulting over time kind of gradually evolved into doing data-driven assessments for um, IT leadership based on properties of code base using static analysis. Um, both of these things really, the, the way I came to specialize was almost through dumb luck. It was just evolution, uh, um, getting better at certain things, getting asked to do them more and then recognizing those business opportunities. So it's a particularly interesting topic for me because I feel like I have a lot of insight now into how I could have done this in a lot more of a deliberate fashion than I did. <laughs> Jeremy, what about, what about you? I mean, You've talked about it, but tell us again. Yeah. Uh, so I really, for all intents and purposes, really just specialize in Rails and Ember development. Um, and then kind of with the subspecialty of helping companies decide if and when uh, a service-oriented approach is right for them. And if they want to go down the road of starting to do microservices 
uh, and how to do that. Um, and then kind of how they're going to handle uh, authentication and authorization and those types of problems uh, across a service architecture. Uh, and then kind of another subspecialty is just architecture in general, helping uh, companies figure out how to scale applications that have grown larger than kind of your typical monolithic deployment uh, can handle and finding technologies that can help ease some of the bottlenecks that they're facing. Um, and kind of like Eric, I've really stumbled into those uh, and has it's been a, a result of kind of intentionally doing what I think of as the first level of specialization, which at least for developers, which is kind of tech focused. Um, there was a time when I tried to pack my resume and my site with every technology that I had ever encountered in any way, shape or form with the idea that I needed to be able to show absolutely everything. Uh, and over time, I realized that that's really not a great approach and is almost counterproductive in a lot of ways. Um, and that I was a lot better off focusing on, you know, just saying I'm a Rails developer, I'm, a, I'm an Ember developer. And yeah, sure, I've I know, you know, all these other technologies, but those aren't the the core of what I focus on. And I'm better off positioning myself as an expert in a few things than as a generalist in a lot of things. Um, and so I, I mentioned that that's kind of the first level of specialization. And then the second level, I think, for developers is kind of choosing a like a market that you're going to go after. Uh, and I haven't done that so much. I've really kind of stopped with technology specialization, um, mainly because it's worked well enough for me that I haven't felt like I have to uh, become further specialized. Hmm, very neat. So, I mean, I, so, so like, I've been consulting for a long time, since about 95, and I started off doing a, a mishmash of different things, but mostly in the web space doing development. Um, a lot of Perl, a lot of Linux and Unix stuff. So I was doing, I don't know, like, let's say two-thirds development, um, mostly in Perl, a little bit of other stuff, and then a uh, smattering also of like Unix system administration and so forth. And over time, then that moved into uh, application development using Perl. And when Perl sort of committed suicide, uh, <laughs> so I, look, <laughs> I, I looked around for other languages and technologies. I sort of moved then into Ruby, and I was doing a lot of Rails stuff for a while. And it was about that time that my family, like I, we were in Chicago for four years when I was doing uh, my PhD coursework. And that whole time I was doing that sort of application development. Um, and when we came back to Israel, uh, I ran into someone, or actually he nearly ran into me with his car, but that's a separate issue. Uh, <laughs> and he said, oh, Ruben, like, are, are you still interested in doing training? And I'd always done some training, not necessarily a huge amount, but some. And uh, he said, if you're interested in doing any training, I can hook you up. And there's a company that would like love to hire you and work with you. I said, OK, you know, why not? So I took the opportunity to talk to a training company. And they were very interested in talking to me. Uh, and they said, what do you train in? I said, oh, in Ruby. And they were like, oh, <laughs> that. No one's really interested in that. Fine, send us your resume. Um, and so I sent it to them and they called me back almost right away and said, wait, you know, Python also, because I also, like you guys had packed my resume with every technology invented since like the late fifties. <laughs> and so basically 
like they said, if you know Python, we can get you training work now. Um, and I mean, I knew Python. I'd been using Python for a while since like, you know, the early 90s, um, just not sort of on a day-to-day basis. And so from knowing Python and using it on occasion, I re- I, I would do like one training a month, two trainings a month. And then it got to the point where it was sort of filling my schedule months in advance. And that's when I realized I really enjoy the training. It pays well. I don't get bug reports from people. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should consider doing this like on a regular basis and not just in between other project jobs. And meanwhile, it was quite a struggle for me to find projects because I'm not in the U.S. and people get suspicious and don't want to work with someone overseas and so on and so forth. But training, I mean, Israeli high tech has a – oh, that's right. The other thing is Israeli high tech is great, but they tend to pay programming contractors very poorly. So if I wanted to make good money as a consultant and also work in Israel – um, and and not have to beg for remote jobs. It actually turned out to be a great combination for me, and I must say the decision to focus on training was I don't even want to say the one of the best. It was probably the best thing I've done in my 25 years of consulting, and the specialization in Python because I even I, I even had like some you know I had Ruby courses, I had Rails courses, I had Postgres courses, I had all sorts of different stuff, and I basically slowly but surely removed those from my website. And I just have like a whole ton of courses I have to do with Python now. And I keep getting more work <laughs> and it just keeps getting better and better. So, um, you know, I'm sort of living testimony to the fact that and, and I would just add years ago, I remember putting on my website uh, something that said some people only use one tool or one language. That's not what we do in my consulting company. We know lots of tools and languages. If we need to learn something for you, we'll do that, too. And in retrospect, I can so understand why I wrote that. And I can, it's so painfully obvious to me how wrong headed that was. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so now like, you know, that was great. Like now my schedule is full, like eight months in advance, which is still shocking, but a nice feeling. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like there's some common threads here. The backing into the specialty almost, or kind of discovering it as we all went And then there's also this idea that um, it's probably, I mean, hearing you guys talk about it, I experienced the same thing where got the kind of alphabet soup of stuff that I can do for you out there. And it being scary and counterintuitive to go away from that and sort of, I guess, pass on, you know, whatever, 99% of potential business and say, no, this is what I do. And this is all that I do. Um, That seems to be a lot of commonality. Yeah, and I think there's a little bit to unpack there about what you just said, that in in my view anyway, finding a specialty isn't always necessarily about turning down all of that other work. It's more about how you present yourself to prospective buyers and making it easier to get in the door with them. And like I've talked to a lot of freelancers that when they start talking about getting specialized, they really have a lot of trepidation about, like you said, turning down more generalist or, you know, good work that they could normally do, or they're worried about what if I get bored, always doing the same thing. Um, Mm. And I think, you know, being a specialist doesn't necessarily mean that you stop doing those other things. It's just that you stop talking about the fact that you do those other things in lieu of, talking about the things that are within your specialty that can help you 
open doors that you might not be able to open if you're presenting yourself as a generalist? That's a great right. point. Cause if I think about if, if there were stages to what I would do, I think yeah. at first I focused on what I was advertising these days, I will turn down mm -hmm. work that's outside of my specialties simply because I don't have time and I've become more efficient with these businesses to the point where it's just better to do, it's better to forego other work that I'm not as good at. But I think, um, especially for anyone listening, that's just getting started, pick a specialty, but don't turn down work. If you need work, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Look, it's also, uh, I mean, the high tech world, granted in Israel, it's small because the country's small, but the high tech world in general is surprisingly small and well-connected and people move from business to business and people want to work with good people. So if you start, like if you work with someone or with a group somewhere and everyone likes each other, the odds are good in my experience that someone's going to call you a year or two later and say, hey, we have a project for you. And the project is not going to be an exact duplicate of what you did before. So you're going to discover new things and new subspecialties or like you're constantly going to be sort of shifting and you can always be evaluating. Right. I think that's part of the key is also like don't focus on something so incredibly tiny from the get go that you're going to be blinded to possibilities. All of us, it sounds like, started off with some general consulting and little by little we found the things that um, sort of there was good overlap between what we wanted to do, what we were good doing, were good at doing and what the market needed. Um, and so we then said, well, why not just keep doing the things that fit all three? And you'll find like things will change over time. I mean, maybe at some point I'll decide that I don't want to do the training or that, you know, Python is passe and you know, something else <laughs> is great. Um, I mean, I don't expect that to happen for the next 10, 15 years, which is great for my career, but not all technologies are as long lived. I seem to have like picked a winning horse almost by accident or people picked it for me as I did, as I said. Um, so look around uh, and keep keep your ears open. Um, and, and, it, and really, it's, it's hard to imagine going wrong specializing. It's really like, like in retrospect, I should have done it years before. Yeah. One of the, I think, most common things I hear, if I think about somebody who is working as a software developer or, you know, in some corporate job, wants to specialize and go out on their own, there's kind of this tendency to focus, and I think the wage world does this to you more, there's a tendency to focus on what am I good at, what do I want to do, what skills do I like, so I want to you know, focus on this particular tech stack because I'm good at it, and I think one of the things that flips that we've all touched on a little bit in our own stories is that getting out there in the world, taking gigs, exposing yourself to a lot of different people and coworkers and collaborators, you start to hear what opportunities are out there. And I think more importantly, you start to hear what the market wants, what other people have demand for and how you can help them. So I think one piece of advice I would give to aspiring freelancers as you're thinking through specialties, think about what you're good at and what you enjoy, sure, but think more about what you're hearing that people need, you know, what are gaps in the market that, that are missing? What are unscratched itches out there? Start with those and then overlay what you're good at and what you enjoy. Like what, what could I bring to this? I hear what demand is out there, you know, whether it's for uh, Python courses or Ruby on Rails development or blog posts, any of these things. Um, then you bring to that like, okay, well, how can I serve this market and do I want to? Yep. I agree with that.
I mean, I, I remember when I was in graduate school, I was sort of surprised by how many um, people doing PhDs choose a topic that's something close to their interests, right? So people who are interested in children's games, they research children's games, and people are interested in computers, use computers, and people are interested in math, do math, and so on and so forth. And at first I thought, oh, that's really weird. Like, that's almost cheating, right? Because, like, they're researching something they already know about. But no, that's smart because you're going to have to spend so much time dealing with it and you want to explore in greater depth and you want to understand it to its limits. And so this, the same thing in many ways is true for your consulting career. Choose something that's of interest to you. I mean, I definitely know people who work at especially high-tech companies and they get a good salary and they go home and they do not want to hear about technology at all. They tend not to be programmers, um, but they, they do exist. But if you're running your own business, you'd better enjoy it or be making lots of money and be willing to like suffer as a result. But I think choosing something that you find fun, interesting, challenging, you could explore for a few years. And you know what? If after a few years you decide to go in a different direction, that's okay too. Yeah, that's another very important point in the specialization discussion is that nothing is permanent. And it's, I mean, you know, I think it's easiest to kind of buy into it if you think of it as a marketing tactic that you're adopting for a while and that, you know, your marketing tactics can and will and should change over time. Uh, that can help it be a little bit less intimidating because it certainly can feel like, you know, you're, you are making the one big decision about your career. Uh, and that can be really scary and, you know, lead to a lot of procrastination and gnashing of teeth and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's that's a great point because I hear from people, and and it's totally understandable. I get that, but I hear a lot of people, uh, maybe who the procrastination you mentioned. Uh, I don't I know exactly what thing? I want to special in. Yeah, <laughs> like what? Well, what if I get this wrong? I'm locking myself in yeah. for the rest of my life. Yeah. Absolutely, no, you aren't. <laughs> you can always change that later. Yeah. So I think as much as I said earlier that the high-tech world is small and interconnected, I'm not going to say the exact opposite, <laughs> which is the world is, is a really big place, like surprisingly big. I know I sound like Douglas Adams here, but like basically um, – like so you know, I, I'm involved in Python and I write about it and I have thousands of people on my mailing list. And then I went to the Python conference and I discovered like some people knew who I was, but a lot of people had no idea who I was, which was sort of fascinating and humbling. Um, but also exciting because it means basically a huge number of these people have never heard of me. I can market myself however I want. If I go up to people and say, I'm a trainer, they'll be like, oh, really? Like, I had no idea. Tell me about it. And, you know, the people I know in my day-to-day -day life, they're sick of me talking about training. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you definitely have the chance to market yourself to different people in different ways. And you're never closing doors because there are always going to be people who have never heard of you who are going to be potential clients and who might be big, great clients. Yep, and you can even do. I want do, do people do like niche A B testing? <laughs> Not because it's so time consuming to sort of learn about a niche and explore it and market yourself to them. Hmm. I don't know. That's an yeah, interesting uh -huh. idea. That that would be a fun kind of experiment to run if there were a way to say like, all right, here are these three interests I have, and I think I could serve this market. Go. <laughs> Which one of them will generate the most business? Right. Um, I don't know, short of building like three different websites, uh, I imagine you could probably make a go, but maybe do a, you know, a lean startup or, uh, 
as Tim Ferriss talked about it in the four hour work week, like put these websites up, you know, take signups or whatever, and then, you know, work on whichever one gets you the most uh, pre-orders or what have you. Look, I mean, Philip, Philip Morgan, you know, who used to be a co-host here, um, he literally wrote the book on, or a book at least, but the book in my mind on like yeah. specialization. Yep. And part of what I love about his book is first of all, he says, okay, these fears you're having about it's too small, it's this, that, these are normal fears to have. The second part is he then sort of walks you through a process of how are you going to choose something that's likely to succeed in the market um, as opposed to finger in the air and hope. Um, because if you've done any consulting for a while, you've had a few different clients of different sizes and different interests, and you sort of know who you want to work with more and who you want to work with less. And so, but like, maybe you want like, I mean, I know someone who loves working with poor nonprofits that might be great for your soul, um, but terrible for your bank account. And so balancing those out is important. Um, but you can't, you can't do that again. Like it's definitely possible to find things that match or almost certainly possible to find things that match both. Yeah, Philip's book on this subject is really fantastic. I highly recommend it. And, you know, that could probably be the TLDR of this whole episode is read Philip's book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you mentioned you mentioned conferences earlier. And I think another, you know, if you're a freelancer and you're trying to think of things that you might want to specialize in, a good perhaps way to think about it is think, what are topics that you would want to give conference talks on and are those things that you would be able to shop around to multiple conferences uh my specialization of helping people figure out authorization within their service-based architectures kind of happened by accident from me giving a talk about that at RailsConf and then a few other uh conferences after that and just having that content out there has meant that I've been contacted by people who have that problem and who are trying to solve that. And so just that content being out in the wild acts as nice inbound uh, marketing. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash freelancers. And I would... Um, oh, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I would generalize too, in my experience, like, I think that's um, an excellent subset of something I found to be true, which is, I'm always having a lot of exploratory conversations every time I'm on site with clients or just in general, to listen to people and to hear where are their opportunities, what pain points do they have, what could make their life better, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and have whatever be true, what would it be? Uh, not that I schedule all kinds of conversations like that, but I'm always trying to have a few to get a sense for what's out there, what problems do people have that could solve and or that they need solved, and what might I be able to do that would solve those, that would 
that I feel I could really bring something to the table. Even if I'm not actively looking for a specialty, which I'm not, it's always interesting to kind of know what opportunities are out there. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I mean, look, when I decided to like go whole hog into training, I decided to really try to rebrand myself from a consultant to a trainer. And the reason was um, partly for me, right? So I would think, okay, when someone asked me what do I do, I could say I do training and that's that. But a lot of it was so that like wherever you would go online and search for my name or find my name, whether it was on LinkedIn or Facebook or my website or my blog, whatever, it would mention training a lot. So that someone coming away would say, oh, I get it. I know what this guy does. And maybe I can invite him to do training at my company too. Um, and it hasn't happened a ton, but it definitely happens some. And uh, it's, you know, it's useful because more and more people see me as the Python training guy. Um, and I don't know who's saying that or where they're saying it, but I know that's happening simply because you know, companies call me up and I always ask, where do you hear about me? Oh, from this person or that person. So the the idea of specializing is not just sort of for you, not just how you identify yourself, but how you brand yourself online. And if you stress it enough, it, it takes some time. It might even take a few years, but then you can really label yourself in a certain way and brand yourself and people will remember it and then react accordingly and call you up for that kind of work. I mean, what Jeremy was saying about, uh, uh, you know, doing certain kinds of um, rails work. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised people called you up because how many people really know those things and they know that you have thought about this on lots of projects with lots of other people. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that's a, it's a good point. If, if I'm thinking about how to, um, describe like a day-to-day benefit of that is it makes like sales conversations in your own marketing substantially easier. You're going to be having, once you pick a specialty, and it overlaps with expertise that you have, the conversations get easier. You're not having kind of weird exploratory conversations about like, well, what can you do for us? Well, I don't know. What do you need? You know, those (laughs) conversations are sort of teed up more in advance. Like this is what I do. And uh, people know that and they're more likely to be seeking you out specifically, which makes the conversations easier and it lets you charge more. Yeah. Yeah. Like the the technical interview just pretty much disappears uh, if people – have seen your content out there and know that you know what you're talking about. Um, I've had, you know, had a client one time just pretty much straight up say, well, we don't need to do a technical interview because I saw your talk. I know that you know what you're talking about. We just need to figure out if we can work together and what it's going to cost. And wow, that's fantastic. And and that makes it so much easier. You know, uh, it's a much more enjoyable uh, business transaction to be involved in at that point. So the yeah. thing I'm wondering is if uh, circling back to kind of the original question, is there an um, is there a definitive or, or, or I guess non-organic way to choose? Like, could you sit down with pencil and paper and come up with your specialty, or does it kind of almost have to be the product of some conversations and experience and you know doing different types of gigs? Um, I don't have an opinion on that, so it's not a leading question. I'm genuinely curious, just because I don't have the experience of like sitting down and picking something. I wonder if that's even reasonable to do or what do you guys think? I'm sure you can, but it does seem sort of artificial and difficult to me. Like, I mean, I could sort of look at the market and say, well, the trends look in this way and that way. 
And so I can anticipate that and I can go off and, you know, do various things. But I don't know. Most people I know just sort of fell into things in some way. I'll even, you know what? I just occurred to me. I'll give a counter example. It's not fair necessarily to say it because he's not here, but I'll say it anyway. So Jonathan, <laughs> I know like a year ago, um, yeah. blogged or wrote on his mailing list constantly about how he was going to um, enter the mobile, uh, no, I'm sorry, the, the credit union mobile market. Like he was going to help credit unions to improve their mobile websites or make them mobile friendly. Mm. Um, and he learned so much more about credit unions than anyone else on earth should ever learn about credit unions. <laughs> um, and he was having all these conversations with people all over from credit unions. And it was like, I, I was convinced, okay, he is so impressive at this. And he is, by the way, he is a very impressive guy. Don't get me wrong. And yet at the end he said, you know what? It's just not worth it. Like I talked to all these people. Mm. I learned how they work. I learned what they want. And it turns out actually that uh, not a good market to go into. And I was stunned because he had put like months and months into this. Uh, but so, so it, I, I, and so I guess he, he found something that was somewhat interesting to him that seemed like it was a good prospect. And yet at the end didn't pan out. And all that research was to some degree for naught. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, just in terms of, you know, process for trying to pick without kind of stumbling into it, I think Philip lays out a pretty good method in his book that, you know, involves doing market research around areas of interest that you have, um, you know, and I don't remember all the steps to it, but it's pretty extensive and, uh, you know, does lay out a method, but it, in the end, it doesn't remove the need for you to be honest with yourself about what you want to do, what you enjoy doing, you know, what you think is going to hold your attention. Uh, you know, a lot of it really is kind of wrestling with some internal questions about what you want to be and do. Uh, and I think trying to avoid that is ultimately going to be a, a losing proposition because you risk end up being stuck doing something that you don't like. For the corporate employees, it just occurred to me that if you can, and you're eventually anticipating going off on your own, but not ready to do that yet, that maybe um, seeing if you can move around within a large enterprise to different teams working on different things, or even do a little, I guess, W2 job hopping, maybe just exposing yourself to different groups and different organizations will help goose the process along. Uh, not that I'm advocating like problematic job hopping or anything, but be open to opportunities, you know, to, to vary your surroundings if they present themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think I like, think back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, if I had not, had I mean I had a few jobs before I became a, a consultant, um, and I guess both of them were in big companies. I worked for HP and for Time Warner, and even though at Time Warner we were sort of treated like a startup, the fact is it was, it was was at some point a big company, and so it forced me to see a lot of different roles, a lot of different things that people do. And I remember when I got to HP, there's this guy called the the you know the system architect. I was like, wow, that sounds really cool. And then I saw what he did. I was like, wow, that is really cool. I would love to have that kind of job one day. And, you know, I wouldn't have even known that it existed if I hadn't been, you know, sort of talking and, and just sort of learning about it. Um, so definitely expose yourself to different jobs, different tasks, different things. Find out what you're, what you're good at, what you enjoy. 
And I think something will appear over time. Um, now, you guys, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about conferences. I know that um, Jonathan has mentioned this a little bit, and I think Philip has mentioned it also. Um, first of all, like the rule, is it too specific? If there's a conference to it, then it's not too specific. Yeah. Right? Because there are enough people, there are enough uh, sort of job opportunities in that niche. But what about going to conferences? I, I can't remember who was talking about this. Maybe Jonathan, maybe someone else. Like, if you're interested in a particular topic, don't go to the technical conference. Um, like, uh, of other programmers, rather go to the conference um, where your potential clients are, uh, and then you can hear from them what they're interested in, what they want to work on, um, what their problems are, and they'll be very happy to talk to you about it. And then you can, you know, use their language to market to them. Have you guys ever done anything like that? I certainly have not. I have not either. Although it sounds like a great tactic because that's a good venue to have kind of market research conversations. Yeah, no, I haven't. I've mainly gone to conferences for other programmer types and spoken at those. Right. I mean, I actually, like, when I went to PyCon this year, um, I was thinking, okay, I'm now doing exactly what we told tell people not to do. And I realized, <laughs> no, wait, I do training. Like, my, my clients are actually the nerds. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, this is a good place for me to be. I've talked at length with people about um, <clears throat> kind of cautioning new freelancers in the software development space. You don't really want to go a lot of places and speak to your peers or, I guess, theoretically competitors. You want to try to speak to your buyers. But the big caveat there is it may be if you're if you're writing books, selling info products or something, your buyers might actually be software developers. Then by all means, go to those conferences. Right. There's another thought I have, too, about picking a specialty, another, I guess, tactic that is near and dear to my heart because I wrote so many blog posts over the years. You could, and this is a lot more indirect, but you could start um, gaining expertise and writing about a specific topic and then see who reaches out to you about it. Because over the years, I've gotten a lot of inbound leads through my blog, sometimes for things that I wasn't really advertising or trying to specialize in. Hey, I see you write this post about X. Uh, would you be willing to come and train this in it? And I'd kind of be floored and think, huh, I never anticipated that as a, an opportunity. <laughs> So if there are topics that are of interest and you're writing about them or speaking about them or, or doing whatever, you're just kind of showing up, offering expertise, that'll give you some feedback, although it's a longer game, about what the demand is out there in and around that topic. Hmm. Very interesting. I mean, I, I've almost never, I mean, I, I blog less regularly than I should, but I do. And great is on technical topics, but... Almost never do people reach out to me about it or talk to me about jobs for it. Um, maybe it's not the right kind of post. Maybe it's like too techy and not too businessy. Yeah, I'd have to go back through and kind of look at past examples to recall off the top. Um, and I would get, let's see, also for plural site courses I did, sometimes I'd get calls based on that too. So yeah, I don't know what the right level of granularity, if you will, is. Um, off the top, but I do know that weird opportunities have presented themselves over the years. But I guess I shouldn't say weird, just unexpected. It's not what I was going for, but there it came and it was interesting when it happened. So I think it's just worth noting that when we talk about, you know, write for your customers and not for your peers, that that's really meant as kind of best case scenario advice and doesn't mean 
that writing for your peers can never work uh, because I think we've all seen that it it can work in various ways. You know, I've certainly had opportunities come my way for from building content for other developers, even when I'm not necessarily trying to sell to other developers, but it doesn't work as reliably and as, uh, yeah, I guess reliably is the right word. It doesn't work as reliably for bringing in new business as it would if I were creating content directly for the types of buyers that I want to target uh, because it kind of takes people putting a couple of steps together for me to be involved. If that makes any sense. Meaning that it, that the reader has to go talk to somebody with a budget to engage you. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Hmm. Well, what happens if like you enter a niche, you know, you choose it based on all the things we've been talking about and it turns out not, not enough clients, not enough money, not enough budgeting. It's going South. You know, you decide to, uh, I don't know, focus on, uh, you know, Java to COBOL uh, um, <laughs> translation training. And strangely, the market is a little smaller than you expected. Uh, not, well, not a lot of people go in that direction, huh? <laughs> well, you know, contrarian. Uh, yeah. So, um, right. So, so the thing is, how do you then re, you know, re-niche? Um I honestly don't think there's that much to do other than, well, just like ch- change what's on your LinkedIn profile, change what's on the website, change how you talk to people and, you know, go try to find new clients in that direction. Like, I don't I don't think it needs to be a, a personal uh, re, you know, uh, a totally, you know, I don't know, ch- change of personality and uh, going through a 12 step program. I personally would go to something kind of as adjacent as possible. Um, I mean, this is a little unfair, I guess, to cite as an example, but I might say, okay, nobody wants to go from Java to COBOL. Maybe people want to go in the other direction. And then you don't have all that much rebranding to do. And if that's an interesting topic to you in the first place, you're kind of set. So I think that's how I would approach it if I felt like, you know, I I would look around for things that were pretty similar, like maybe I'm just going to appeal to a different vertical or whatever the case may be. And see if I didn't, if there wasn't a way I could find a gentle landing that was pretty close to what I was trying to do. That is a really good point. That even if the niche doesn't work, you still learned a lot about these businesses and what their needs are, and you should try to take advantage of that. I I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, And kind of to the point about if a niche doesn't work, I think it is good if you kind of have some, uh, I don't know, you might call them bailout conditions in mind or. You know, you know that you're going to give it six months and you want to see, you know, so many new clients worth so much money to have considered that test successful and approve, you know, to have proven that the niche is worth hanging on to. And, you know, I think you need to be honest and frank with yourself that if you can't get there and that doesn't happen, that, yeah, that's a sign that I shouldn't hang on to this thing that the market is telling me isn't going to work and it's time to look for something else. Because, you know, if you it it can feel like you are in, inventing a whole personality for yourself. And once you feel that personally invested in it, it can be very hard to let go and decide to do something else. And so I think having kind of conditions like, you know, you make a deal with yourself up front that if if we haven't done 
this well by this time, then that's a sign that this isn't working. It's time to do something else. Yeah. It sounds like a sanity check, like building yeah. a checkpoint. If yeah. I, am I going down a rabbit hole? Exactly. We've sort of mentioned this a little bit also, but I, I, I want to accentuate this point. This is the whole niche thing is a marketing strategy, right? It's a way of how people are going to think of you and how they're going to find you. It does not mean you have to turn down work that's not in your niche. Yeah. <laughs> right. If someone calls up with interesting work and has nothing to do with, with your specialization, it's okay to take it. So I, I don't know, two, three weeks ago, got email and made some phone calls, had some phone calls with a guy in New York who's starting a new company. And he wants me to be involved with a consultant and maybe be the part-time CTO. And it's not what I do directly, but boy, oh boy, this sounds like a super cool company. I think I could really help them out. I'm not going to, I mean, I'll mention on my website a little bit here and there when it finally starts, assuming this works out. But, um, you know, I, I don't have to go through a whole rebranding just to take that interesting work. And he knows, like he knows that the bulk of my time is spent in training and that doesn't phase him at all. On the contrary, like he's like, oh, that's, you know, that's great. So you're not working yourself into a dead end, even though non-niche prospects might be rarer, but it doesn't mean they'll disappear altogether or they have to turn everything else down. Yeah, you're definitely yeah. not precluding yourself from doing those other kinds of work. You're trying to pigeonhole yourself in people's minds to make it easier for them to recommend work to you. Like, you know, if you say you specialize in booking systems for hotels, it's a lot easier for people to go, oh, I, I know somebody that works at or runs a hotel and they have trouble with their booking system. I could put you in touch. Whereas if you're saying, I do computers, you know, <laughs> nobody, nobody knows anybody <laughs> that needs computers, you know, as a general specialty. Uh, and so it makes it very tough for people to recommend work to you or to make connections on your behalf. Well, I'll, I'll tell you uh, when we first moved into our apartment, so I guess it's uh, close to uh, 19 years ago. Um, so the neighbors came to say hello and uh, they said, oh, we've heard that you work with computers. Oh, no. <laughs> and so like, you know, we, maybe you can help us out. And I said, I would love to help you out. Just one little thing. I, I don't know anything about Windows. I only know about Unix. That <laughs> was one of the best things I've ever said to any neighbor. Um, and strangely, I've not gotten any technical support requests from them since. So that's like an anti-niching sort of thing. Like yeah. establish what you don't do. <laughs> well done, sir. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is, is it okay for someone to like say, well, I'm not sure what I want to do. Try a few different things in parallel, like different, different projects in parallel, um, or not in parallel, you know, one at a time and then say, okay, over the last six months, I've tried four different topics and topic B seems like it's the biggest winner. Is, is that a reasonable thing for people to do? I certainly think so. Yeah. I it's, um, it's keeping the lights on, keeping you getting paid while you're doing some development and figuring out what you want your business to look like. So I think that's probably a great strategy, frankly. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's a, a great strategy as long as you're, you know, kind of giving each of your options, uh, you know, the good old college try. Uh, you don't want to be spread so thin that you're trying to do 100 things in a month and expect that one of them is going to, you know, massively outperform the others. Uh, you want to kind of have some, you want to be placing well-considered small bets. Mm -hmm. I think we've talked about this for a while. Any, any other like last, last thoughts before we move on to picks? Well, for me, I think that if I were going to leave with any parting advice, it would be the thing we touched on earlier, which is don't 
use like guess procrastination or indecision as an excuse not to go forward with your goals. You're not going to be locked into any niche or specialization, and you don't even need to be specialized to go off on your own. You can start taking contracts and general gigs and kind of iterating from there. So just whatever you do, don't use you don't let yourself use indecision as an excuse to put off life goals that you have. Yep, I agree with Absolutely. that 100%. And I would also just add, you know, don't be uh, reticent to even take that first level of ditching and say, I'm a, I'm a Rails developer instead of just I'm a developer. Uh, because even that little bit of additional specificity uh, will really help open doors that wouldn't be open otherwise. Absolutely. All right, uh, let's do some picks. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood, and I've been asked more times than I can count, how do I stay current? There's a lot to this question, and I'm working on a solution, code badges. That's right, you heard me right. Basically, the idea is, is that you come and do a code badge, and that gets you an introduction to a topic. Then you can decide if you want to pursue it further. But while working on the badge, you gain enough proficiency to be able to pick it up again if you need. A lot of technology comes through on the bleeding edge, and not all of it sticks, but the principles do. So doing badges on the technologies that will get you ahead will provide you with experience needed to stay competitive. Plus, it offers social proof that you know something about the topic. The project is on Kickstarter right now. You can support it and get on the launch list at codebadge.org. Jeremy, what you got? Uh, so I'm going to pick the positioning manual by Philip Morgan that we mentioned earlier. Uh, it's really a really good book. He did a fantastic job on that. Um, and then, you know, a little bit of self-promotional plug there, he he uh, produced the thing with Remark, my software product. Ah. Uh, so I'm doubly proud for that. Uh, and Philip's just a great guy. I like him a lot. So, yeah, read the positioning manual for technical firms uh, by Philip Morton. And I just got one Excellent. today. You just got, oh, just, just one got the right. one today. Yeah. No, I thought you meant like you only had one copy of the book and you were encouraging people to buy multiple copies. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. Do that too. Uh, <laughs> Tell Philip I sent you. <laughs> Eric, All right. So I got a, a couple this week. Um, for my business, Hit Subscribe, we uh, actually just set up a 401k and we're sort of moving into, I guess, more official territory if you were bringing on W-2 employees and such. Um or preparing that infrastructure. At any rate, the company, we use a payroll company called Gusto. Um, that's not my pick. I might have picked them before. I like them. But they put us in touch with a company called Guideline um, that I think does 401ks for small businesses exclusively. So if that's something you're thinking of, um, we haven't got the 401k fully set up yet, but it has been great so far in terms of making our options clear to us and ease of setup. So definitely worth looking into if you're considering a 401k for your business. Uh, and then the other thing is speaking of the hit subscribe agency, I'll throw a pick to uh, writing for us and I'll put a link in for the show notes for that. If you want to come uh, write blog posts and get your name out there for pay. Nice. Okay. Excellent. Uh, so I've got, I guess, three picks. I've been away for a while, so I, I'd like to think I'm allowed. Uh, so first of all, the self-promotional one is, I'm not sure exactly when this episode is going to come out, but I think it's going to be in time. Uh, a new cohort of weekly Python exercise is opening in late September. If you want to join, and I know you do, 
just go to weeklypythonexercise.com. Um, it is a weekly Python exercise for those of you who had to figure that out from the name. And the idea is to, of course, uh, improve your skills. It's not an introductory course. It's basically meant to level up your skills through a combination of community discussion and uh, problem solving. If you have questions about that, you can always contact me. Um, and uh, while I was away in China, I read two fantastic books about politics and so forth, politics and geopolitical stuff. So one of them is From Cold War to Hot Peace by Michael McFall, who was the American ambassador in Russia. Uh, and he describes what Russia is like uh, under Putin and uh, not so great. But sorry, spoiler alert. But <laughs> anyway, great, great, great book. Fascinating stuff. Uh, great anecdotes. Uh, the other one, sort of from a, a similar sort of perspective, is a War on Peace, the End of Diplomacy and the Decline of American Influence by Ronan Farrow. Uh, and Farrow, of course, has gotten super famous over the last year. He got the Pulitzer for uh, basically writing about uh, Weinstein and the whole Me Too movement, maybe even setting off the whole movement. Uh, but he writes here not about that at all, but rather about um, what the U.S. State Department does, tries to do, how they work, how they work sort of in parallel with soldiers, um, and they see themselves as important. And uh, uh, fewer and fewer of them exist over the last uh, few decades. So it's fascinating reading with fantastic stories. Uh, and if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I definitely, uh, definitely encourage you to try it out. All right, guys. Thanks very much for a great discussion. And thank you all for listening. And we'll be back next week on The Freelancer Show. Bye, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.